0: I've entitled my thoughts this morning, Maintaining a Conscience that is Void of Offense. You will find that uh, phrase in Acts 24, where Paul is before Felix, and he's on trial. And he, he tells Felix, we won't turn to that just exactly right now, but he tells Felix, he said, I can tell you, Felix, that I have maintained a conscience that is clear before God and man. There's been a number of things in, in my life recently that have made my mind go in this direction, some observations and some thoughts. And so I, um, I put together this talk, and I'll have to say that I hope I don't make more questions than I answer, but I guess there could be that possibility. But I think if I did this for any reason, it was more to try to clarify some things in my mind as much as anything. So just a few questions off the, right out of the gate here to get us thinking. Uh, what exactly do you think of as a conscience? Are you glad today that you have a conscience? Or maybe I should, do you have a conscience? I hope you do. What would you do if you didn't have a conscience? Is, do you consider your conscience to be working well? Do you consider it to be calibrated correctly? Do you feel that your conscience works the same way as your brother's conscience that's sitting beside you on the bench? Or do you think it works the same way as the guy that's on the Blooming Prairie Street this morning? Is it possible, is it possible to maintain a conscience that is completely void of offense? The well-known writer Mark Twain had this to say once upon a time. He said, a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. Is that right? What Mark Twain was saying is that it's impossible to have a a clear conscience. I would say Mark Twain is perhaps right and wrong. It depends on how you take that. Probably we'd all have to admit at some point we did not have a clear conscience. But I want to say that you can have a good memory and still have a clear conscience. Paul would indicate that, and I agree with that. In 1940... Um, Walt Disney came out with a musical called Pinocchio. If you don't know anything about Pinocchio, that's fine. But I know a little something about the story of Pinocchio. He was a puppet that was brought to life, supposedly by a fairy. But he had one thing missing, and that was a conscience. And so there was a cricket assigned as his conscience... And do you think Pinocchio would listen to that cricket? He got himself into more trouble because he refused to listen to that cricket that was supposed to be his conscience and caused the cricket a lot of grief. Every time he told a lie, his nose got just a little bit bigger. You remember that part of it, too. Well, at the end of the the tale, uh, Pinocchio was made into a real boy, supposedly. And guess what he got when he became a real boy? He got a conscience. There's not many lessons you can draw from a Walt Disney musical, but if, there's, if there is a lesson we can get from that is, in 1940 anyway, people believed that real people had consciences, and there were some absolutes, and there were some rights and wrong. There's an estimation that I ran across, and again, I don't know how you arrive to these conclusions, but somebody concluded that one in every 25 people do not have a conscience. I thought that was interesting. Probably it is true that one in every 25 people act like they don't have a conscience anyway. That's, that's probably true. So exactly what is a conscience? Webster puts it this way. He says it's the part of the mind that makes you aware of your actions as being either morally right or wrong, or a feeling that something you have done is wrong. Another definition, the conscience is defined as that part of the human psyche that induces mental anguish and feelings of guilt when we violate it, and feelings of pleasure and well-being when our actions, thoughts, and words are in conformity with our value system. Now this brings us, that last definition I read, I do believe brings out a part of the conscience that is um, worth considering. Your value system and your training will very much have a bearing on what produces mental anguish, what produces that that pang of the conscience when you violate it. Which brings you to the next question. Does every human being start out at the same spot when he's born? Does everybody have an equal conscience? Would it be fair to say that everybody starts at the same place as far as a conscience goes? Did Adam have a conscience when he was created? I'm going to say that Adam had a conscience when he was created. I think that's what made him different than the animals, or part of what made him different than the animals. We know he was an innocent person, but he was given one strict command, he and his wife. And we know that he violated that command. And when he violated that command, why did he go hiding in the trees? And God had to go looking for him. It was because there was something inside him that said, Adam, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done that. You violated what you knew to be better. And I believe there's something tells me, and, maybe, and, and I would, if you, if you think differently in this, please, I, I'd be interested in hearing your thought. But when Eve and Adam took that fruit, was there anything inside of them screaming, don't do that? Was there anything there? I tend to think there was because I don't think God would have put a Pinocchio in the Garden of Eden with no conscience and gave him a command and they could have just taken that fruit and absolutely nothing in them said, don't do that. I think they had a conscience. Now, how that was altered after the fall, I'm not exactly prepared to discuss, but there may have been an altering there, perhaps. But we do know that their conscience was working after they had sinned. I would say that... Romans 2 makes it quite clear that every person is born with a conscience. If you read in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For when the Gentiles, which have no law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not a law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile excusing, accusing or else excusing one another. Does that not tell us that every person, no matter how wild, does have a conscience? At some point, he starts out with a conscience of some, some sort. In John 1, 8 and 9, John, this is said about John. It says, he, John, was not that light, but he was sent to be a witness of that light. That was the true light, Jesus which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. It lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Does that not tell you that every man that comes into the world has a degree of light? Has a conscience that is functioning to some degree? When I combine Romans 2 and John 1, I come to that conclusion. That I have some sort of a conscience to work with as I am brought into this world. God has programmed something, a sense of right and wrong into each person. It is always interesting to me to know that the actual word conscience shows up in the New Testament quite a few times, but never, the word itself is never used in the Old Testament. Um, That's an interesting um, um, observation. However, the fact that conscience has worked in the Old Testament cannot be doubted. Else why would have Achan hid that Babylonish garment and that wedge of gold in his tent. Why didn't he put the thing on and flaunt it a little bit? It's because he had a conscience. All right, now turn to Acts 24. We're going to uh, read this um, conversation that Paul had here with Felix. I'm going to start at verse 10, and I'm going to read, oh, I don't know, through um, verse 16. Then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayst understand that there were yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they provide the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the Lord my Father. I'm sorry. So worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And I've hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there should be a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. I'm going to back up to verse 14, and I'm going to read that verses 14 to 16 in the Amplified Version for you right now. Verse 14, But this I confess to you, however, that in accordance with the way of the Lord, which they call a heretical, division-producing sect, I worship the God of our fathers, still persuaded of the truth and believing in and placing full confidence in everything laid down in the law of Moses or written in the prophets, having the same hope in God, which these themselves hold and look for, that there is to be a resurrection both of the righteous and of the unrighteous. Therefore, I always exercise and discipline myself, mortifying my body, deadening my carnal affections, bodily appetites, worldly desires, endeavoring in all respect to have a clear, unshaken, blameless conscience, void of offense toward God and man. So what was Paul's keys to a good conscience here? Can we pick anything out of these verses that give us some basics to a good conscience? Well, I'm going to propose to you that verse 14... He says that he had understanding and he had respect for the law of Moses and the prophets. In other words, he had a point of calibration, which was the law and the prophets. He had God's word, and he used that to calibrate his conscience. Verse 15, he believed that there was righteous and unrighteous. That's important. If you're going to have a conscience, that's working right. Things are right and things are wrong, and, you're, and, and your, your conscience will help you determine that. Which, what's right and what's wrong? And in verse 16, he says, I do not allow one tidbit or one excuse to excuse any carnality. And I realize that the training of my conscience is an exercise. It's a discipline. The word exercise in the Greek carries the idea of training. So in other words, it does have to be trained. A conscience has to be trained. And he says, the way I go about this is I mortify my body, I deaden my carnal affections and bodily appetites and worldly desires. I identify those things which are going to skew my conscience, in other words. And this all leads to a clear conscience with God and man. I would like to suggest this morning that it is important that we noticed that he didn't just say, I have a clear conscience toward God. Or that he said, I have a clear conscience toward men. He, he put the two together. I would suggest to you this morning that the two are not always the same. Okay? And you're going to have to hang with me and you're not allowed to fall asleep if you want to figure out why I think that. I think sometimes it is possible to have a clear conscience before God and yet be offensive toward man. Okay? And I, and I get that from the Bible, so stick with me here a bit. I'd like to go so, to some other testimonies of Paul. Clear conscience to Paul seemed to be a big deal. In 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's talking to the Corinthians, and he says, For I know nothing, and in other translations it would read something like this, I am not conscious of anything against myself. Our King James says, For I know nothing by myself. It's the same root word as consciences. And and the Amplified says, And I feel blameless. In other words, what he's saying is, As far as I'm concerned, my conscience is telling me that it is clear before God. But get get this. This is the second part of the verse. It says, Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. So what's, what's Paul saying? He's saying... As far as I know, my conscience is clear. But I'm smart enough to know that just because I feel good does not necessarily mean that I'm right. Not necessarily. Just because my conscience does not condemn me does not mean that I'm automatically on the right track. 2 Corinthians 1.12 He says this, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to your. And he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and says, I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Now get that. Paul says, from my forefathers, I have served God with a clear conscience. Was Paul always on the right track? I think you know the answer to that. But he said, I've maintained a clear conscience the whole way through. These are some more things that Paul had to say about a conscience um, in his writings to mostly Timothy and Titus. Now, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and out of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. And again holding faith and a good conscience which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. In other words if you don't hold on to that good conscience a very very good chance you will experience some shipwreck. And again to Timothy holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And again to Timothy there will, be, there will be teachers in the last days who speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And into Titus, he says, Under the pure, all things are pure, but unto those that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled, dirty, unfit for use, not functioning. And in the book of Hebrews who we assume is maybe Paul, but we don't know who it is for sure. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Pray for us, but we trust we have a good conscience and all things willing to live honestly. You get the connection here. In most of those verses, there is a connection between his faith and his good conscience. The two seem to work together for Paul, and he put a big connection between the two. All right, so how does this all work? How do we maintain this good conscience that Paul talks about? And I want to be clear here in the front. There is, I dug myself in a little deeper and I really intended to in this one. Um, and again, I, I got to stress that I do not feel like an authority on the subject. But we're going to stir around it a little bit, and I will feel like I have succeeded if I got you thinking this morning. That's all I ask. All right? You may even disagree with me vehemently. But if I got you thinking, I got you disagreeing with me, then I know I have you thinking. So that's a good thing. All right? I would say that there is an intertwining of the work of the Spirit, the Word, our convictions our conscience, and how those things all work together, I don't know I can answer that patently. In 2 Timothy 2, whenever Paul was writing to Timothy, it's one of my favorite verses. He's, he told Timothy, he said, Consider what I say, but let the Lord give you understanding. And that's exactly where I'm at this morning. Consider the next things I say, but allow the Lord to give you understanding. So I'm going to give you five things that I think are at least worthy of consideration in this matter of maintaining a clear conscience, how this all works. And this is my understanding of it, and again, I want to stress, um, I tried hard to get this from God's word, but you can disagree with me, and and that's fine, I, I I don't hold that against you at all. Number one, just again going back to defining the conscience a bit, because I want to I think we got to understand how this thing is formed before we can understand how we maintain a good one. I believe that a conscience is largely molded by our teaching and our exposure or lack thereof to truth in our formative years. That's, that's what I believe. I believe that's a lot where it starts. In other words, our conscience does not of itself tell us what is right and wrong so much as our conscience is a moral measurement based on the revelation or teaching that we've already received. Okay, now you get that? So in other words, as we progress through life and we're exposed to more truth, our conscience becomes more and more calibrated and more and more in line. It can tell us more and more what is right and wrong. Let me give you an illustration, a few illustrations of what I mean by this. So again, Paul writing to Timothy, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, he says this. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious, but I attained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. So in other words, Paul had a clear conscience on that road to Damascus, but he was dead wrong. He was dead wrong. But when he was exposed to that truth on the road to Damascus, what did he do? He got it right. And suddenly his his conscience became more uh, clearly calibrated for him. Why did the Jews in the early church, and we, we talked about this in the Sunday school lesson, why did they struggle so much with that idea of circumcision? It caused so much trouble for them. Well, there's a good reason. It's because from the time of Moses on, and maybe even before Circumcision was a very big deal. You did this. That is what you did to um, show your, your solidarity with God and His commands. That was what the nation of Israel did. And it, it went against their conscience not to. Now, was that right? We know the answer to that. We, the, the New Testament is full of discussions on that. Why did Peter cringe when that curtain came down from heaven filled with all those unclean beasts. And, he's, and God, God himself says, rise and eat, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter says, I can't do that. Why couldn't he? Well, it was because his conscience was saying, Peter, don't do it, don't do it. Well, Peter eventually got it. He got his, his conscience calibrated right. But again, it had more to do with his teaching than, um, than anything else. Why will a Muslim person today have a hard time eating pork? Again, you get it. It's a conscience thing with them. Do we have any issues with that? Well, maybe we do, maybe we don't. I would like to suggest that some of the things that we have a conscience against are more relative than absolute, but are still very important that we maintain that good conscience. And, and I'll give you an illustration, and I hesitate to do this because I'm a, every time you give an illustration, people's minds tend to run to the illustration and they don't get the point. But I'm going to attempt to give you an illustration of what I mean, and I hope you understand me. Would it be wrong for me tomorrow, if it's warm, to don on a pair of yellow shorts and walk through Dodge Center? Or green shorts or purple shorts? I have a friend that I've had discussions with. He wears shorts that come to his knees, and he wears socks that come almost to his knees, all right? So it's only the knee that's showing after all. He says, really? Come on. Is that any different than your long pants? I can't really argue with the man, but there's something in me that just would feel uneasy walking down the streets to dye center in a pair of yellow shorts tomorrow. Why is that? It's because I have been taught that a good application of modesty is to wear long pants. I have never had a pair of shorts on in my life, All right, at least not on the streets of that center anyway, perhaps in my house. But you, you, you understand what I'm saying. Um, is my friend wrong to wear his shorts to come to his knees? I can't take you to a scripture that says so. But am I wrong to wear my long pants? I don't think so. Would it be wrong for me to violate my teaching and wear short pants? I'll let you decide that. Personally, I'm not going there because I don't want to violate my conscience. And I think what I do is a good application of my conscience, okay? You you can take this anywhere or a lot of places. Why don't I make hay on Sunday? Can I go to a Bible verse that says, you can't make hay on Sunday? Not really, but I've been taught that it's a good idea not to do that, and so I follow my conscience. If I pull the old bailer out t- today, start bailing, I'd have a hard time standing on the seat. It would really bother my conscience that I'm doing that, because I'd be going against my teaching, okay? Is this clear? I hope this is clear. I hope you're following me here. We as a people, here in this auditorium this morning, have been exposed much So the word of God have been exposed to a very scriptural church, most of us and a godly influence. And that gives us a big advantage. Let's be thankful that we have a conscience that pricks us when we do certain things and not violate that thing. And we'll talk about how this works as we move on. All right. So let's go to point number two. I believe that. Maintaining a good con- a conscience that is void of offense means that it is very risky and unwise to ignore the promptings of one's conscience. And again, I'm going to assume that I'm talking to an audience that has, by and large, a pretty good conscience. Okay, good teaching, good Christian upbringing, and a properly changed conscience. So if that's you this morning, it is a really unwise thing to ignore the promptings of your conscience. Okay? We already talked about that verse that, that uh, talked about a seared conscience. I believe a seared conscience doesn't generally start out with one great big sin. Done. Seared. Done. I Generally, I think it starts out with a little give here, a little give there, a little there. And the conscience starts just pounding a little bit. You just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. You just go a little bit further. Counts a little bit more. Just ignore it. Just keep keep ignoring it. And just completely continue that searing process. I will say this. David, for all the mistakes the man made, had a very well-functioning conscience. And here's why I say that. When he committed that sin with Bathsheba, you say, how could you do that, David? You knew better than that. But in Psalm 32, it says, When I kept silence... My bones waxed old through the roaring all the day long. I believe David's conscience was just hammering him day after day. I think that roaring was the conscience working. In 1 Samuel 24, when he cut off Saul's robe there in the cave, it said his, his heart smote him. That was his conscience. It said, you shouldn't have done that, David. When he numbered the people in 2 Samuel 24, it says his heart again smote him because he numbered the people. Compare that to King Zedekiah in Second Chronicles 36 when it says that he had all these opportunities and he had the word of God presented to him and he had the prophets that came and talked to him and it said he just hardened his heart. Boom. Hardened it. No conscience. If the conscience was working, he just seared the thing. I can remember... A time in my own life, and I'm sure every one of you can, but there's a specific event that comes to me where I and my friends made a decision to go to a place that I knew wouldn't necessarily be approved of by the majority of people that I knew. All right? That's as much information as I'll give you. But let me tell you this I did not enjoy myself that evening, and my conscience just hammered me. And I left there and I said, you know, I'll never do that again. And I'm happy to tell you I didn't. Now, what would have happened if I'd have said, you know what, this was pretty fun. We'll do the skin next Saturday evening. And the following Saturday evening, I might still be doing it. And I might not have a pang of guilt about doing it. I believe herein is the fragility of the conscience. I'm a bit um, familiar with searing things. I'm not really happy to tell you that. but, And I hope there's nobody that belongs to PETA here this morning. But I do sear, singe, hurt my calves occasionally to take their horns off. And it's done with an iron that's 1,000 degrees. And we do this, we got to lock that head down pretty tight. And we apply that 1,000 degree iron to that horn bud. And it, immediately the calf flinches and he, and he works himself. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But you know how I know when it's all done? and the horn will not grow back, the calf doesn't struggle anymore. He's done. He, won't, he will not work against me. When, I, when that happens, I know that I got the horn. I go to slide number two, and it's the same old thing all over. A few seconds, there's a lot of struggle, and all at once, it's, it's done. It's over. I have seared that nerve tissue to the point there's no horn ever coming back again, Ever. I made the mistake the first time of feeling so bad for the calf that I pulled it off too soon and I had horns all over the place. Um, it was just not a good experience. What can we learn for this, from this? Well, this Greek word, seared, in First Timothy is the same word as branding, cauterize. And when something is cauterized, branded, seared, in the real world, it never gets its feeling back again ever. It's done. It's dead. I believe that we face a real danger if we ignore our conscience of permanent damage. Okay? Now, I don't know how often that happens. I don't know how it happens. But I I draw from the Bible that there are people with reprobate minds. Romans, Timothy, and Titus all talk about people that have a reprobate mind. How did these people get their reprobate mind? I have a feeling that at least part of it is because they ignored their conscience. Now, there's, I'm sure, more involved to that, but I think a piece to that puzzle was an ignoring of the conscience. Satan wants to brand your conscience this morning. Let me assure you of that, and he will. He'll do that for you if you allow him to. Please, folks, don't ignore your conscience. It could very well be to your undoing. All right, let's move on. To maintain a conscience void of offense, I think we need to consider our brother's conscience whenever whenever we do a thing. And herein is where I say that Paul said, I have a conscience clear before God and man, both, both of them. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 8 for some thoughts on this. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul has this discussion about, and and this was another big issue in the early church. Okay, so we have these idols, and we have this food that's offered to the idols. And then we have the food that is taken and sold in the marketplace, and we have Christians that come and buy the food. And there was this disagreement Look, that food was offered to idols. You can't do that. Well, Paul tries to to bring some clarity to the issue. And here's what he says, I believe, through the inspiration of God. He says that, after all, food is food is food. And idols are nothing. They're nothing. All right, so when you put those two together, there's no reason a person can't buy that food that has been offered to an idol and eat it. And have a clear conscience. That's possible. But he said there are those people that are your brothers that still believe that that idol is something. And to them they cannot eat that food because that thing has been offered to an idol. And they feel like they are participating in that idol worship or at least condoning it if they eat that meat. So what's our solution? Well, let's—I um, should just read this. Um, oh, let's read uh, verse eight, maybe. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither, if we eat, we are the better; neither if we eat not, we are the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge, sit at meat at an idol's temple. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom God, whom Christ died. For when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now it's interesting to me that the solution Paul comes up with here is he talks to the strong brother, the brother that actually has it right, and he says, brother, here's what I want you to do. He said, just abstain from the meat. Don't do that, because he said if you don't and you offend your weak brother, what does it say in verse 12? That's a sin, and you sin against Christ. It says, and you cause your 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 weak your con, your brother that's weak in the conscience. To lose his faith, and that's a sin. It's interesting to me that Paul had no instruction for the person with a weak conscience. He didn't say, Now, you folks with the weak conscience, you really should consider that, you know, there's really nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, your brother is strong, he can eat that meat, and, and you folks really should come down off your high horse and just accept that. I believe that there would have been, and probably were, people that had a conscience against eating this meat that probably at one point, as they grew in the faith, ate the meat. I, I would I would have to guess that probably happened. But in the interim, these people who had it right had an obligation to their brother's weak conscience. And so often, I have a tendency to ignore my brother's weak conscience. That's just my tendency. I think Paul understood the value of conscience and the harm that could come from running a rough shot over what the conscience told these folks to do. So he summarizes it like this in Romans 14. I'm going to read this out of the ESV. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but anything... But it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is neither good to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself by what he approves. And he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not of faith is sin. Now there's also an interesting example we have in Acts 15, I'm sorry, Acts 16, directly after the Jerusalem conscience, when guess what this what the subject was? The subject was circumcision, Judaizers again, and they came to the conclusion that it was wrong to force anybody to be circumcised to be a Christian. That was wrong. It settled. And it said the churches had peace because of it. What happens in the first two verses of Acts 16? Paul comes upon Timothy. And he says, Timothy, come here, let's get circumcised before we go out and we preach to the Jews. How do you bring that together? Well, it was simply this. Paul knew he could have a better ministry, or Timothy could have a better ministry, if he was circumcised, with the Jews, if he was circumcised. And he said, just so I don't make havoc of that weak conscience, Timothy, let's go ahead and get circumcised. Now, I believe if they would have entered into those Jews, and the Jews would have demanded that Timothy be circumcised, I think Paul would resist it. I really do. He did it with Titus. The exact opposite took took place with Titus. But it seems like Paul was concerned about being, not offending the conscience of his brother. And again, to further muddle the matter, and this this is where I come up with more questions than answers, I guess. But I think we need to be careful. There's a caveat here. We need to be careful that we do not excuse our worldliness as having a strong conscience and our brother who has good judgment and a pure functioning conscience is the guy with the weak conscience, all right, when in actuality you are the one that should have your conscience sharpened, all right. Now, I'm not sure I can completely tell you when that all takes place, but I'm Rest assured, I do believe that if you expose yourself to God and his spirit and his word, you will find yourself through that. I have an illustration I'm going to give that so much uh, helps to put shoes on what I just said. So I had a, I had a, um, a um, rapid response team member call me a few weeks ago. He had been out... Um, with another team uh, helping with some cleanup. And when we're out and about like that, many times we'll eat out quite a bit because there's nothing else you can do. You, uh, pretty much that's, that's what you're going to do unless the coordinator cooks, and if he's not a good cook, that can turn into havoc real quick too. So we, we eat out. So anyway, there was, this, um, there was a few establishments there in that town where they were eating out, and the one was a steakhouse, but in the, in the windows of the steakhouse, there was beer signs. They were, were plastered with beer signs. So I don't, I don't, this is the story he gave me, and so I'm, I'm giving it to you. Anyway, um, but I don't think it was called a bar. I think it was called a, a steakhouse, whatever. But it was pretty obvious that there was some, the drinking was a big part of this. So the coordinator that was running the team, he decided that he wanted to eat steaks in the steakhouse. And this brother that had called me, he said, I told him, I can't do that. I can't go into a place where there's beer signs all over the, the windows and, and, and eat in there. He said, that, I have a conscience against that. So he didn't know how this worked out. That day, I think if I remember right, that day they did not eat at the steakhouse. But the next day when this brother that called me left and his son came to take his place, they ended up eating at the steakhouse. And that really bothered this brother that called me. He said, I told that man that I did not want to eat at that steakhouse. He said, guess what happened? When my boy comes there that I did not want exposed to that, they eat in the steakhouse. He said, I, I just, that just bothered the man. And I mean, it bothered him so bad he was calling me. He's calling the uh, Kim Icorn and, and other people. And he said, I think there ought to be something in writing that we don't eat at places like this. Well, we talked about it. But it brings out a lesson here. What should have been done? I'll give you my opinion, and I'll let you decide if you agree with me. I believe if we had a brother there that didn't want to eat there, by all means, there was other places to eat. Do we have to do that? I think the answer is no. Okay? And it could be that the brother that ate there and had no conscience on it is all good but is he all good? Are we, again, I go back to what I just said, are we mixing up our dull conscience and calling it a strong one? Again, I don't have an answer to that, but I want you to consider that. Consider that. Make sure you don't construe weak and strong and dull and sharp. All right, let's go into the next one. To maintain a conscience void of defense, you cannot ignore a group conscience. And I define a group conscience as the things that are generally accepted practices by a body, and in this context, a body of believers. That generally will include some specific guidelines and some that are just understood in the context of tradition. I think that's a group conscience. Generally, these issues are more relative than absolute. I would add that. I think that whenever we violate the generally accepted practices of a given body, we begin to skew towards individualism. And we begin to say, you know, I can make better judgment than a group. Whenever the old King Solomon said in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom, we say, I got the best judgment. I'll go with what I think. I will ignore what is the generally accepted group conscience. My observation is that a person that goes that route generally will get to the point where he gets he gets to the point where he will say, and guess what, I think I know better than God too. Yea, hath God said after all? There seems to be no stopping point. And again, I'm going to give you an illustration that happened just real recently that brings this out and I'll try to make it short. So in MCUSA, there is this big hullabaloo about gay marriage right now, I'm sorry to say. You know that. Recently there was a 96-year-old bishop in that particular organization that married his gay son, and I'm sorry to say that as well. How does a person get to that point? If you do the math, he's 96 years old. This man's old. He has seen he has been in his church for a lot of years. He has been in his church whenever it would be a lot like the one you and I are sitting in here today. How do you arrive at that? Now here's a part of the story that's interesting. In 1959, this man was a missionary in Ethiopia, Africa. Okay. And when a delegation from his conference came to see him and his missionary friends, he was. they met this delegation, and it became immediately obvious that there were some practices being instigated at that mission That were not condoned whatsoever by the sponsoring churches. But where do we go with that? Well, it was lauded as progress by the progressives, but it was met by much grief by the conservatives, just to make a long story short. The excuse was hey, we're over here, and there's some things that make sense over here that don't make sense where you live. That could have been the case. But listen, folks, there's a right and a wrong way to arrive at those decisions. May I say that those folks did it the wrong way? They totally ignored their sponsoring churches and did what they wanted to do. Did that have any searing effect on this man's conscience that 90, 50 years later, he can marry his gay son? Is there a connection, I ask? It's also interesting to me that this very bishop that did this is A.D. Wanger's son. And for those of you that know anything about Mennonite church history, A.D. Wanger was a very conservative evangelist in his day. Very rock solid. This is his son. And I just throw that out for whatever it's worth. It seems to be that there is a connection between the willingness of a person to, to submit himself to a group conscience... And the sharpness and accuracy of his personal conscience as he um, journeys through his life. I really cringe at the statement sometimes I hear that I won't do what my church says because I don't have a conscience on it. Let me assure you, there are some people that ignore biblical teaching for the very same reason. I do not have a conscience on it. Is that right? I ask you if that is right. I don't think that that's the path to take if you want a clear conscience before God and men. And on that point, I am open to discussion. I will will say that. That is my take on it, but I am open to hear your take on that. All right, last point. A conscience that is void of offense is not necessarily a life of perpetual feelings of uneasiness or guilt. And I just thought I had to just briefly um, talk about a sensitive conscience. We talk about this sometimes. I think a sensitive conscience on a person is a lot like a person has allergies, and I'm suffering from allergies right now, and you maybe noticed that. But when a person suffers from allergies in a physical way, he's hypersensitive to uh, pollen or dust or mold or whatever the thing is that, that makes his eyes water and his nose snot and all that stuff. And, um, I really think that a person with a sense of conscience is a lot the same way. He's hypersensitive to everything that comes down the pike, and he lives a life of uneasiness because of that. That is not what God wants us to live, I don't think. I think it's Satan's goal to settle the sinner and the wayward Christian and just brand his conscience and say, you're all right, buddy, just keep on going. And then to take the person that really wants to do what's right and mess with his conscience and say, you know what, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right, you need to, you need to tweak that better. I read a very, very interesting um, account of a, um, of a man in a Franconia Conference back in the 1890s. He, uh, he caught a wild rabbit, barehanded. Now, this, this rabbit either was sick or he was really good, one of the two. But he caught this guy barehanded, and he killed it, and he skinned it out, and he gave it to his neighbor that was sick, all right? He gave it to him. But then his conscience just smoked him. He said, you know, it wasn't hunting season. So he went to the JP, and he turned himself in, and he said, I caught this rabbit, I, I scanned it, I gave it to my neighbor, you know, I'm here to pay my fine. So he paid his fine, he went back home, and he was smote the conscience again, he said, you know, really, my neighbor was a part of this too, because he ate the dumb thing, so he went back and paid a second fine for his neighbor, okay? Now, did the man have an oversensitive conscience? I would say perhaps, perhaps that was overdone a bit. But I almost hesitate to say that because the man did indeed have a conscience working pretty well, I want to say. Um, so there's some tension there. I don't know if there's a pat answer when, 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 I, when you go to evaluate, is this a legitimate pang of the conscience or is this oversensitive? I'm not prepared for that in-depth discussion. But I would just say this, a few questions you can ask. Was this thing intentional? What are the ramifications of this particular offense? I would say sleep on it a little bit. See if you continue with the feeling. And I would say, depending on the grievance or what's bothering you, get another opinion on it. And by all means, pray about it. I just really believe that those are some steps we can take to sort through. Okay, am I living with a conscience that's just really hypersensitive, or is this, are these matters something that, be, that needs to be taken care of? And I don't know, I struggle with this, and I'll ask you the question. Would you rather live with a dull, unworking conscience or a hypersensitive one? Both are a problem. Both are a real problem. But I'm going to just venture out to say that I think I'd rather have one that's hypersensitive than one that's just dull. I think I would. But both are a real problem. And and you have to have a proper tension there. And again, I'm not really prepared to give you the pat answer on how that all works. I will say this. If you are struggling with an oversensitive conscience or you think you might be, read the book of 1 John, especially chapter 3, and just ask yourself the questions that John asks. Do you like the people of God? Do you love the people of God? Do you want to do what God wants? Are you making an honest effort to be an obedient follower of Jesus? Is that where you are? In verse 20 of John, 1 John 3, John puts it like this. He says, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, we have confidence toward God. W- what is he saying this here in those two verses? I think what he's saying is sometimes, dear people, the facts must override the feelings. And he said, if, you, if you're looking at the facts and things are lining up, then he said, God's greater than your heart, and he knows all things. And just um, deal with the feelings. Let's get the facts straight. Calibrate the conscience correctly. Realize that, God, that God's love to us and our desire to do the right thing is evidence of a conscience that's void of offense, even though it doesn't feel like it. So in summary, Hebrews 9.13 says this. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's a key to a functioning conscience. So, how is it with you today? Are you living with a good conscience? Are you living with a conscience that is void of offense before God and man? Are you like, I can't wait till that preacher sits down and quits talking about a conscience? Or is there something in there that's just panging you and it says, you know what, there's things in your life you really really need to get together. Is there hidden sin that like Achan, you're hiding it in your tent? Are you sensitive to your brother's conscience or are you easily running roughshod over it? Are you willing to submit yourself to a group conscience and the conscience of your brotherhood? I will say this. If you have a good conscience this morning, guard it carefully. Don't give that up easily. Don't give it up at all if you can at all help it. And you can help it, I might add. But if you're sitting here today and you know in your heart that you do not have a good conscience, by all means, get it right. You may well be on your way to a seared conscience. And God knows you don't want one of those.